and we've been on this for quite some time. Uh, we, we, as a church, uh, I hope, are captivated with what the holiness of God means, what it is, and how that affects us or how it should affect us. But today we're going to be talking about demonstrating God's holiness. And already you can tell that we're going to all struggle with that, right? Demonstrating God's holiness. So in honor of God and His Word, let's stand for the reading of the Word. I have taken the, pri- the privilege of putting it up here. But it's, this is out of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 48 through 52. Deuteronomy 32, 48 through 52. Then the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day, saying, Go up this mountain of the, of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, across from Jericho, View the land of Canaan, which I give to the children of Israel as a possession, and die, (laughs) go up and die, on the mountain which you ascend, and be gathered to your people, just as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. Verse 51, because you transgressed against me among the children of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, because you did not hallow me. In the midst of the children of Israel. Yet you shall see the land before you. Though you shall not go there. Into the land which I am giving the children to, or to the children of Israel. Let's pray. Lord we ask that you'd give us wisdom. By the very direct ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Lord that you would show us the need of our hearts today. As it relates to this powerful passage. And God as we as sinful. Incessantly sinful creatures. Seek to demonstrate God's holiness in our lives. Looking at Moses. Lord, help us to see the grace extended to him. But the severity of the command. In Jesus' name, amen. So you might be thinking, why on earth would you call it demonstrating the holiness of God? Demonstrating that. Well, I actually got it from the New Living Translation version. I just read to you the New King James um, I, this one that I'm going to read to you now is not NKJV, it's, it's ESV. I, I didn't check it, but this, this version I want to read to you now is ESV version of what I just read. And I'm going to read in the green. It says, it's all pretty much the same, because in the ESV version it says, You broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribeth Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy. Back in the New King James, it says, because you trespassed, because you did not hallow me. But then, if we go to the NLT, it says, for both of you, so Aaron and Moses, betrayed me with the Israelites at the waters of Meribeth Kadesh. You failed to demonstrate my holiness. So you see, we have three versions. We have the New King James, which is using the word trespass and hallow. That they failed to do. Okay. Then you have the ESV. That says you broke faith. And did not treat me as holy. And then finally you have the NLT. That talks about you betrayed me. Because you failed to demonstrate. My holiness to the people. And I, and I read that. And it really gripped me. Because Moses was dealt a, a hard blow there. If uh, And we're going to soon go back and read it. 
But if, if you read about Moses and, and how he started off uh, there in Egypt, uh, he, he killed an Egyptian when he saw him attacking one of his brethren. I think it's fair to say with other instances that Moses had a bit of a temper. Okay, I, There's no question that the man had a bit of a temper. But then he was saddled <laughs> with all of these voices. What is it? Roughly between four and six million uh, uh, Hebrews coming out of Egypt complaining to him solely. Remember before uh, his father-in-law Jethro, why do you try to judge all the people by yourself? It will wear you out. And I think by the time that came, it was too little too late. He was probably already wore out. And it just kept continuing on and continuing on. And the people complained against God. And they would all came to Moses. They even wanted to stone him. They wanted to stone Aaron. Everyone was trying to take his... Everyone wanted to take the authority that Moses had, which I have no doubt would have been happy to have handed it over. Because he just didn't... He was a, he was a man that, that, that God used, but he was, a, he was a man. And we have to remember, he was a man. He was a man full of fault. And as I said before, it's not hard to, to read in between the lines that Moses was very troubled by the people. He, he was, they set him off on a daily basis. He was down to his last nerve with them. I, and I, I think when we have Deuteronomy, if you read the theme of Deuteronomy, as he's going back over their pilgrimage up out of Egypt, he's rehashing all the incidents, like someone who says, and you people, I mean, it was almost as if he just had this built up, stored up anger that you saw, and then not to top it off, I don't even get to go in because of you, okay, uh, because we, what we have when he smote the rock three times, which we'll read in a second, but Moses is like a lot of us. He wasn't looking for the burning bush that day. God just called him. He didn't ask to be the leader of a nation of ex-slaves. God just called him to it. He certainly didn't want to be the counselor to all those years of abuse. Now, can you imagine dealing with a, with a true slave, beaten, and chained, and downgraded, didn't know how to think any different. And then seeing what God, all the miracles that God did. And then seeing this very people doubt God still. And he's taken all this. He didn't ask for any of that. And God's called him to be a counselor to a people like that. God has called him to pretty much be. He's sort of the official non-priest if you will. Of setting it all up. He didn't ask for that. It's got to be just right. And he gets really uptight when things aren't right. Because he's been with God on the mountain. And it's shown how it's supposed to be. And God said so. And so here's Moses. And he's giving his farewell address. To these people. He's 120 years old. 120. Most of us are tired at 50. He's 120. And he's just, wearing, he's wore out with them. But the thing that gets me most when I was reading this passage, and the reason why I want to share it with you today is, no matter how 
tried we may get, no matter how impatient or frustrated or wore out with those who, whom God has put into our life that we are to minister to that seem to just suck the very marrow out of our bones. If there's one last drop of joy, they come along and just gobble it up. Okay, those, God, we still have a responsibility as ministers to demonstrate God's holiness to them. Now, I think, but Lord, that's just the problem, isn't it? (laughs) We aren't holy people. Now, we've been declared so by Christ. All of this started back in the discussion and the study of sanctification. It all connects because as it turns out, the very word used to demonstrate the holiness of God is what we would call, and well, I'll get to you in a minute, but it's a noun verb and it's acting out holiness. It's doing it. So it's all connected to hagios in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Holiness. How are we supposed to do that? How, how are we supposed... Does it, do any of you ever get frustrated at all? Okay. How many of you are morning people and just wake up ready to conquer the world? I'm like that. How many of you are done by three? Okay, me too. Okay, how many of you are night owls and get better with the night? With Oh, really? See, we don't understand each other. So, because my wife is exact opposite of me on that. She gets better and I get worse. But we don't know when we're going to be called upon to minister. We don't know what phase in life. You can't say to God, it's not a good time for me now. Okay? Moses was this person. So I want to encourage you. Actually, you think, well, how's this going to get any better for us? And, and actually, I think, man, Lord, this would do really well for preachers. But it actually is all of us because, as, as you well know, we are the royal priesthood of God We bear the praises of Jesus. We have been given this ministry of reconciliation. Some of us do it in an official capacity as pastor or or missionary or Sunday school teacher or elder or deacon. But all of us have a responsibility to minister Christ to people. And I'm sure I'm going to tell you this. It's never going to be convenient to do so. Okay. So after a long day on the bulldozer. When you're as cranky as you can be and you've ate dirt all day, someone just might be there to say, how is it that you know Jesus? You think you know all there is to know about Jesus, but I don't know anything because I'm of a different faith. You better be ready for that. How are you going to react to that? Or how can you preach to me when I see you fail? You better deal with that. Or how come you think as a Christian that you're exclusively the only true way to God you better be ready to deal with that or family members that would like to remind you of your awful past or awful mistakes knowing full well that you're a Christian because really what they want is you to minister to them they just don't walk through the right door how do you deal with that here here's where I think it starts for us this is from a book called The Hidden Life of Prayer, which, by the way, I think is the single best book on prayer I've ever read. It's not very thick, by David Emmentire. What a weird name, huh? Emmentire. Emmentire, okay. He writes this. This is called The Calloused Heart 
an unexpected source of encouragement from a calloused heart, if you will, right? Here's what he says. He who was once like a flame of fire in his master's service may have allowed the fervor of his first love to decline for want of fuel or lack of watchful care until only a little heap of gray ashes smoldered on the altar of his affection. So you get the picture he's drawing there? There's been a season in your life when you were just a flame for God. You were, you were like a blowtorch, okay? If you're a welder here, you know what a rosebud is. You're like one of those. And then just over time and life and, and just living, you're now a little heap of ashes smoldering. This is your affections now, and you hate it. You don't like it. You're aware of it. There have been better times. Well, he writes this and put this in green because that's always the emphasis. The same person, his greatest sorrow is that he has no sorrow for sin. His heaviest burden is that he is unburdened. It's like when you're going along and you realize, you know, that used to bother me. Why doesn't it anymore? I used to feel great affection for this when it came to the things of Christ, but now I'm somewhat bored. Here's the beauty. They hate it. Thank God they do because living things grow, right? Living things breathe. Here's what they say to themselves. Oh, that I were once again under the terrors of Christ. That's where you pray. Make me afraid again. Make me reverential again. Make me sensitive again to your spirit. Bring back that heat that I had. Show me my wickedness afresh. Make me remember my dependence on you more. God, don't leave me like this. This was their cry of one who had hung in agony over the brink of the pit. Suspended there. He had learned that a cold heart toward Christ was insufferable. And isn't it, Christian? I don't think there's anything worse in the Christian life than the backslidden state. When all your food loses flavor. And you have it. See, that's the thing. Don't think for a second that you don't have it. You've had it. But you've just allowed life to, to move in on you. You've gotten careless with your prayer time. It's kind of like having a, a good diet. It's really easy, even after eating well for three or four years, to begin to, to creep back into to old habits. Some of you, though, hearing this message, you, you may not have ever had it. One of my, fav- my favorite uh, hamburger places in Twin is called uh, Burger Stop. I like it. But... One complaint I have about them is that their meat was never very flavorful for me. So I decided on this occasion, I'd say, and can you please put extra seasoning on mine? Extra salt and pepper, please. And they looked at me puzzled, and I said, what? (laughs) You know, they said, well, we don't season it at all. And I said, well, that would be the problem. So it's, it's not that it was too light, it was never there. See, so I was actually expecting something that was never there. And uh, so they obliged and it's really great now as you might ask for spice anyway some and i think that's how it is for a lot of people who've grown up in the church they've been around christian parents they take on christ in their psyche 
They know the good way as it's been taught to them. They've done religious stuff. But there's no flavor because there's no spice because there's no relationship at all. So it's very external. But then there are some who truly do know Christ. And there's been good times, man. You, can, you know it. But just through time and wear, it's abated. Well, we find this to be, as the writer writes here, insufferable. Those who are in such a state are often nearer the Savior than they know. Do you read that part? Those who are in such a state are often nearer to the Savior than they know. Moses was the friend of God. Moses, you know, the one that killed an Egyptian. The one that struck the rock. The one that got angry with the people. The one that would like to probably pluck every one of their heads off one by one. Moses, that one, was the friend of God. How? Because God is so rich in mercy. We are great sinners, but we have a greater Savior. Those who are in such a state are often nearer the Savior than they know. So I want to tell you this. If you're listening today, you know you're not shining very brightly. I'm glad you know. I'm glad you know that. It's a gift of God and a sign of His grace upon your life that you know that. Because you're alive. You're alive. Now, now what do you do with it? He finishes by saying, More are drawn to Christ under the sense of a dead, blind heart than, all, than by all sorrows, humiliations, and terrors. And he's simply saying, When we come home, it's because we know how far we've drifted. It's ugly and cold out there. God, bring us home. So now, turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20. Verses 1 through 13. And we're going to read about the incident here that got Moses basically uh, blocked or barred from seeing the promised land. Okay. Okay. Now, this is the second time they've been having to deal with water coming out of a rock. This isn't new to them. This is a, this is a miracle that's the second time around. So, it's not like they have no experience. but But they're... They're, they're longer in the tooth now, so to speak. The mileage of ministry has taken its toll. And this is what we read in verse 1 of Numbers 20. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, so they gathered against uh, Moses and Aaron. So they get the whole... Can you imagine that, by the way? Okay. It's not like you have a water bottle. What are you going to do if you did? Right? And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. You know that had to have affected him. He's like, God brought you out with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, just like he said he would. You walked through the the Red Sea on dry land, just like he said you would. He fed you with manna for him, just like he said you would. He would. You've had water out of a rock before, and you still think you ought to die in chains. You people! I mean, I imagine that's how he feels, right? Verse 4. 
Here's their question to Moses. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we are animals and should die here? So now they're claiming that Moses thinks they're nothing but animals. You don't care. You just think we're animals. You got, can you sense how this could make him a little bit, I don't know, out of sorts? And I know some of you here would probably not take it as well as he did. I know this guy wouldn't. I'd be looking for the nearest slingshot. So, verse 5, and why have you made us come up out of Egypt? Why have you? There's the say. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt? Most like, I didn't ask for this job. <laughs> Can you see the conflict? Okay. To bring us to this evil place. It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. That's your fault. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just... So Moses and Aaron, verse 6, went in from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Okay, good, good first thing to do. Good first thing to do. They're doing right so far. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, and gather the congregation together. Now notice this operative word. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. This is a simple task. How many times does God say the battle is it's his? We leave saying, Amen, I'll do it. The battle's yours, Lord, I'm gonna do it. See, right? It's nonsensical. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. I would give anything if the Lord would say to us, speak to the roof and it will yield its shingles. Problem solved. There's no drama. We can all go home and have bacon. Okay. That's what Moses was told. And it says. It will yield its water. In verse 8. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock. And give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord. As he had commanded him. So far so good. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them. Now this is where the wheels fall off. Right here. This is the moment. That got him barred from entering the promised land. Here now you rebels. Must we. Must we. Who's, who's he talking about? He and Aaron. Must we. Must my brother and I. Bring water for you out of this rock. And I'm reading this as you know. Very comfortable theologian in my chair. At home saying. Well that's where you messed up. Then God says, and this is where you've messed up, son. You do this all the time. I tell you what to do. And then you take it on yourself that you do it. And it's all up to you. Then Moses lifted his hand. And what did it say he do? He did. He struck the rock twice with his rod. Water came out abundantly. The whole congregation drank. But then verse 12, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord 
and he was he was he and he was hallowed among them. Must we bring water? I strike the he was supposed to speak to the rock. This is the consequence of why Moses was in the predicament that he was. And this was Moses that we read about in Deuteronomy going back over that account with them saying, right? Because he's about to die. But still in God's mercy, he's going to let him see the land. The number one prerequisite then for biblical leadership, whether you have an official title or not, is the presence of God. Leaders must not grieve the Spirit. I wrestle here hard. Whether you're, when you're a father, when you're a Christian dad, you're a leader of God to that child. When you're a mama of that child, you are a leader of Christ to those children. When you're a friend to an unbeliever or an unbelieving sibling or to a believing sibling that's younger than you in the faith or friend, you're a leader of the gospel to them. And the first number one prerequisite we see here for biblical leadership is the presence of God on the life. Leaders must not grieve the Spirit. And that's really problematic. None of us wake up and see how we can grieve the Lord that day. It just, we stumble into that. But I also believe that we have a fleshly sin nature that is hungry, that we often overlook and underestimate in its severity in wanting to be fed. You do realize you can never let you can never let up. You never can. You you can never let you can never let go of the diligent watch over your soul. You 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 literally you can't afford to stand down. You must learn to live on the battle line. The artillery will never stop falling. There'll never be a moment when you can just casually lift your head up above the trench and not expect to get shot between the eyes. It never stops coming. But who fights your battles? God does. Who tells you what to do to live victoriously? God does. Where does He write His love language to you? In here. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you want to see Jesus? Open your Bible. Do you want to have His presence with you? Store it in your heart. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let it be fresh and you can never let down. So here's a question then. How is it that we grieve the Spirit so easily? And I think it's this. We have misguided affections that tend to sneak in and, 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 and they sabotage us. Now there are busy things we have to do in life. And some of these things... I call are not very redemptive. 
then they need to be rightly ordered. You understand that? Rightly ordered, non-redemptive things can be blessings, but they can also take you down a track of destruction. If you find yourself giving an inordinate amount of time to your pleasures or your interests or your hobbies more than you do the study of Scripture, I can tell you this, you are already on a trajectory of defeat. You will be destroyed. What, I, what do you mean destroyed? I'm going to lose my salvation? No. But here's how I would liken it. You're a tank, right? You're going along the battlefield. That's what's happening. Someone comes out with an anti-tank weapon and blows your tracks plumb off. Well, a tank with no tracks does what? Nothing. Your turret is lodged. You've lost power. You can do nothing. A life that has an inordinate balance of time spent in pleasures or passions other than Christ, other than putting Him first, other than putting the Word first, other than beginning, beginning your day with God, is bound for that kind of reality. How are you going to deal with Moses-like conditions if you're too busy doing whatever? Well, Moses and Aaron conspired amongst themselves and allowed their flesh to dictate the commands of God rather than submit to the commands of God by the Spirit. They wanted, they did it. Must we bring water to you from this rock? Who do you think they are, right? And yet, how many times have we done that? And here's where I think the emphasis, this, this is, I believe, is the crux of the matter. In short, they rebelled in their fear of God, and they did it their way. Show of hands for those who have ever committed the same atrocity. Thank you. Thank you for your honesty. For those who have not raised their hand, here's the altar. So I'm going to leave you with two words. I'm not trying to confuse you, just trying to clear it up. We're going to be closing now. In all three versions, we had the same things. It goes back to the Hebrew. These words meaning trespassed or betrayed. It means to act unfaithfully. You did not hallow. You did not believe me. You didn't act faithfully to me. In other words, to trespass or to act or to betray means to act unfaithfully. It means to do wrong by by failing. Now get this. This is from the Hebrew. By failing in a relationship or with regard to a standard. Do you follow that? By failing in a relationship with regard to a standard. Whose standard do you live your relationship to Christ with? Who decides terms? Here's your standard. If you're not living to the standard, you're going to be living one way or another. Whose standard? That's why our small group Bible study is so impactful. Because you approach God on His terms, not your terms. And you'll be the better for it. Whether intentionally or unintentionally is what it asks. So you can do this passively or actively. Okay, now that's the first part. Trespass, betrayed. What about this other one? Hallowed, you did not hallow my name or you did not demonstrate my name. Kadesh in the Hebrew is what it means. And as I said before, it simply means you did not make my name holy before the people. Well, I thought, how did the NLT arrive at the translation of the word demonstrate? 
This is what we call a denominative verb. And you're thinking, why do you say such things? But I think we should learn. Denominative verbs are simply called noun verbs. Okay? Uh, for, and and this, is from, this is from the verb stem. And in, in, in this is where we get into the PL verb stem. Okay? The PL verb stem in Hebrew. And it really means this. The object of the PL verb stem suffers the effect of the action. Now, hold with me. It is put into a state by the action. In the sentence, Bob flies the plane, the direct object is the plane. It is put into a state of flight by the subject of the verb is Bob. God's name was not hallowed before the people because Moses and Aaron did what they did. It's a noun verb. Holy, to make holy, to be holy, or to be unholy, to defile. That's what they did. What kind of a noun verb are we for God's holiness? Don't be Bob. Or if you're going to be Bob, fly the plane. Make it soar. Be the noun verb whereby God's holiness is demonstrated in your life. Make that be your ultimate goal before those little ones. Largely, most of the spiritual decay that's happening in our nation today, and I, and I believe with all my heart, you can disagree, that's okay, that why we have the, the sexual perversion we do, the worship of the crea- creation over the creator that we do, and the identity politics that we do, is simply because there was somewhere along the line, sometime, a Christian generation that did not demonstrate the holiness of God to their children. And it happened in a greater, a, a, a great to, a, to the degree that it began to build a movement. The whole do as I say, not as I do thing. You ever heard that? You need to go to church. Well, why should I go to church if, if you don't? Well, Sunday school is important, but, well, if you don't go, why should I go at all? If you only go on Christmas and Easter, why bother then? Christian parent, at some point, you have to decide if you're going to be the generation that takes it back. And those little people are sponges for the gospel. You've all seen mine roll around up through here. I pray it doesn't bother you, but I want you to know. He may not know what prayer. He's not even two. Okay. He doesn't know what prayer is conceptually but he knows the posture you've seen him and I pray one day he'll know more as he sees it modeled why do we want our children in our auditorium well so we can make the parents uncomfortable and preoccupied (laughs) so we can be just totally hardcore no no 
That's narcissistic thinking. Parents, it's not about you. It's about them. So they can watch what we do. And I guess I have to admit that I never understood the severity of that object lesson until I was over here one day praying like we do. And suddenly this little boy comes up beside me and puts his head down between his knees on the stage here. And then he says, Amen. If he's siloed off back there, how's he going to ever see it? If they're not allowed to be noisy in the congregation, how are they going to ever observe? It's got to be changed. And thank God we have a group of parents and younger ministers and stuff in this church and older ones come alike saying, we've got to change this and are taking steps to do it. Thank God for that. Well, I'm going to close with this. This is a view of Moses by Thomas Manton. He was a very meek man. In Numbers 12, 3, we read that, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men that were upon the face of the earth. How would you like that wrote about you? And do you know what the irony is? Meekness means controlled strength. And I'm thinking, he killed a guy. <laughs> God's view takes in everything. This is, the con- this is the commendation of the Spirit of God given to Moses. Now, meekness is a virtue which keeps control in anger and avenging ourselves when we are offended, wronged, and condemned. Yet this meek man could get and could be angry. For example, in Psalm 106, 32, they angered him also at the waters of strife. We just read about it. Must we? And crash, crash. They provoked his spirit. In the holiest men, there are relics of sin unmortified. And such weakness that they may readily fall into sin in the hour of temptation. And such sin as may cost them severely. Who would have thought his spirit could be grieved and so embittered? And then he writes this and finishes. It is a dangerous sin to mingle our passions with God's public service. Or to go about the work that he sets us to do with a state of agitation. Therefore, we had better watch over ourselves. Who wants to be in the ministry? Better be careful. But your first ministry is at home. My first line of ministry is my wife. And then my children. And I won't lay off ever until I'm like this, okay? And my grandchildren. I want my family, I want them to know Christ and love Him more than they love anything else. And if I have to preach them into an early grave, I will do it. Okay? I will risk a little getting upset with Dad over it. But I also will not do it in my strength. My job is to start in the morning with me. So that I have something to give them. We're going to go into a time now. And JT's going to come and play. I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. And those who are helping to service the Lord's communion.
as we get ready to partake of this, this is what we're going to do. And where you are, where you're sitting, let's just like we do in the old days. Every head's bowed, every eye closed. Right now, every head bowed, every eye closed. No looking around. This isn't the end of some kind of a, a show. We need to begin to ask God, Lord, where are my affections? In the way I minister your name to my family, to my friends, to the lost that see me. God, do I do it in my strength, in my way? Am I content to just do it the way I want? Lord, do I have an inordinate amount of energy going to other things that are very clearly non-redemptive? Robbing you of your time. Robbing you of your time with me, specifically. God, I repent. As we know, as every head bowed and every eye closed, when we take communion, the Lord tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves, to see if there be anything in us that by taking communion, we would be doing so in a way that mocks God. We are hiding sin. We have unconfessed sin. We're hanging on to pride or bitterness or unforgiveness. The Bible tells us we need to cleanse ourselves from such things and then take of the Lord's table. Communion doesn't save us. It doesn't commend us to God. But it is a great picture of our oneness with Him. And when we come to Him in such a thing, celebrating His, His death and His coming again and the life He gives of the new covenant, we want to do so with clean hearts, pure minds, just for a few moments, ask the Lord to allow you to see what you need to see.